today's scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 9 to 15. Book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 9 to 15. If you please rise with me for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Please join me in welcoming Ben Jack to the stage. All right, let me pray for you, brother. Lord, we just want to thank you for this time, and we thank you, God, that you are the one that raises servants for your cause. We know that you are doing a good thing all around the world, and we are so privileged and honored to hear about what you are doing. But, Lord, we don't just want to hear about it. We want to also be your hands and feet. So, Lord, as the word is proclaimed, we pray that you would anoint your servant now with your Holy Spirit so that it can be proclaimed with boldness. It can be proclaimed with courage and the truth would go out and penetrate lives, change lives for your kingdom, O oh God. Please be with my brother Ben and we do ask God that, Lord, you would lift him up at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Um, hey, good morning. Oh, good afternoon. What time of the day is it? I don't know. Is it the afternoon? It's 12.52. All right, it's afternoon. If I come down here, just out of interest, if I come down, can you guys still see me? Because I'm quite short. Can you still see me? Is that all right? It's just, I feel like a long way away up there. I feel like I'm in a distant land. I'd like to come a little bit closer and uh, spend some time with you down here. So my name indeed is um, uh, Ben Jack, and uh, I'm from the, the UK. Anybody been to the UK? Oh, not many. That's disappointing. Okay, you should come. It's fun. We have a good time. The weather, the weather is horrendous. Um, you, beautiful sunshine out there today. Although I heard rumors that there's a, a hurricane coming. Yeah, so that's bad news. We don't get hurricanes in the UK. We just get rain all the time. But you should come visit us in the UK. It's, it's a great place to live. And the reason why I wanted to show you uh, the, the video clip that I just showed you is one, because it's easier to see it on the video, who I work for and what I'm involved with, than it is me explaining it. You know, if you see it for yourselves, it kind of gives you a bit of an insight, a window into what uh, I'm up to. That's better than me talking about it. But also because I want you to see the excitement and the enthusiasm that we're putting into the work that we believe God has called us to and the impact that it's having around the UK. Because I don't know if you guys hear much from the UK, but a lot of the time when I'm traveling around the world, people talk to me and they say, hey, man, what's it like in the UK right now? Is it pretty tough? They're hearing statistics that the church is dying in the UK, that people are leaving the church in, in droves. And you know what? I'm not going to lie to you. It's kind of tough in the UK. We're increasingly embracing secular society. We're increasingly embracing a liberal agenda that is having a, a massively detrimental effect on all various different aspects of our society. Uh, and indeed, there have been many, many, many people who have left 
the church. But you know what? It's not all doom and gloom. Because here's the thing. For a lot of the people that have left the church, I'm not entirely sure they were ever there in the first place. I think a lot of the people that have left the church have left uh, because they weren't in it to win it. They were just there because it was something to do on a Sunday. They grew up in a Christian country. It's part of their heritage. They wanted to be part of the Church of England because that's what you do on a Sunday if you're, if you're from the UK. You kind of go to church. It's the heritage thing. And I think a lot of those people have started to slip away from churches as church has been questioned and reevaluated. What is faith? What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? Does Jesus Christ even exist? And as people have started to think to themselves, oh, that's better. You can see my beautiful face now. As, uh, as, uh, as people start to reevaluate that and think to themselves, oh, actually, I'm not sure if I, if I really believe in God. I'm not sure if I really want to live for God. I think that's just something I did on a Sunday. I think we've seen people fade away. But as you can see from the video, the work of the message, trust, we're not the only gig in town there's many, many, many churches around the UK doing wonderful work. There's fantastic organizations like Youth for Christ, founded by Billy Graham in the middle of the 20th century. Amazing stuff going on where lives are being transformed and impacted and people are coming to the gospel. And we're seeing young people come to the gospel in amazing numbers. And we're seeing transformation happen around the lives of young people. And you know what? We need transformation to happen in the lives of young people. Let me give you a couple of statistics that will sober us up a little bit this afternoon. One in 10 young people in the United Kingdom has a clinically diagnosable mental health condition. One in 10. That means one in every 10 young people that you meet has a serious mental health concern. The second biggest cause of death for teenage boys in the United Kingdom is suicide. The single biggest cause of death amongst the 20 to 35-year-old generation in the UK, boy and girl, is suicide. That's an outrageous statistic. Let, these, let that sink in for a second. In a developed, prosperous, thriving nation like the United Kingdom, where we have wealth, we're in the top 1% of wealthiest people in the world. We're in the top 1% of wealthiest people that have ever lived on the planet. We're the healthiest people that have ever lived on the planet in all of history. We have the longest life expectancy. We have the supposedly best quality of life. We have the best technology, the best medical care, all of these kind of things, the best opportunities. We can travel around the world. We can visit. We can achieve our dreams. We can aspire. We're the best educated people that have ever lived. And yet the biggest killer of teenage boys, the second biggest killer of teenage boys, the single biggest killer of people the age 20 to 35 in the United Kingdom is suicide. How can that be? I'll tell you how that can be. It's when people believe that they're an accident, a cosmological accident. You just appeared here one day because the universe decided to throw you out. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. You just have to try and get on with it and make the best of it in your 70 years. And if you can get a good education, maybe you can get a good job. And you can get some good numbers in your bank account. And then you can buy yourself a nice house. And get the boy or the girl of your dreams. If those things work out, maybe you'll have some value in your life. Maybe your life will mean something. The problem is, is that when you don't achieve these things, when you look in the mirror and what you see disgusts you and there's no way to shake yourself from that feeling... And when a tragedy strikes you in your life and you think, oh, this is so hard. This is so painful. Why am I living? I mean, it just feels so rough right now. And I know that it could get better, but something else could come along when it gets better and and put me back to where I am now. I don't think I want that. And you kind of think, well, there's no eternal consequence. Maybe it would just be better if the pain wasn't there. It'd be easier. People take their lives because they've bought the greatest lie that the enemy want to work over you, which is that your life doesn't have value. That's a lie. Your life is the greatest gift that God has afforded you, breath in your lungs, so that you may turn that breath back to worship. 
and say, Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that you created me, that you love me, that you have given me a hope. And I'm privileged to be um, an evangelist, a preacher of the gospel. That's my job. That's cool. Like some people get to go around and they get to preach and they get to tell people about Jesus and they kind of do it in their spare time. I get paid to do it. That means that when I'm sitting at home, uh, playing on my Xbox, hanging out, just having some, some me time after work, I'm like, I've done my evangelism for the day because it's my job. I'm all, no, it's not really what happens. But I don't view it as a job, even though it does pay the bills. And I'm so fortunate and privileged and blessed to work for an amazing organization like the message that goes out into the world to make a difference. You saw from that video, we work in high schools, which we can do in the UK, which is it's great. I know you can't so much do that here, but we can still go into high schools in the UK and, and share faith. We can't proselytize. You can't say, repent, you know, turn back to Christ there and then. But we can say, hey, I'm a Christian. This is what I believe. This is why I believe what I believe. And this is the difference that I believe it makes to my life. You're interested in that? You want to come find out more? Come to a concert. We put these concerts on and you saw some of the concerts. I was involved in putting those concerts on. We did those back in February and March, the hardest thing I ever did. Uh, We had fire and you saw from the screen, fire and explosions and all kinds of crazy stuff. And just filling out the risk assessments is the thing that almost killed me. It's a disaster. Um, So it's such a privilege to then be able to put these concerts on and have people come to the concert where they can hear the gospel explained and make a decision to follow Jesus, to become a disciple. And the tagline for for the tour that we did in February in March was disciples, not just decisions. Because even though I'm an evangelist, which is basically I'm a, I'm a preacher of the good news, I want to go out, I want to be a mouthpiece, a herald, an ambassador for the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. Even though I'm an evangelist, even I know, as an evangelist, as a preacher of the gospel, even I know it's not enough for me to say, hey, you need to follow Jesus, and for someone to go, oh, okay, and put their hand up, and then not follow Jesus. It's not about getting hands up. It's not about getting people to stand up at a concert and say, well, this sounds good. It's about enabling an opportunity for the Spirit of God to bless someone with the gift of faith. That they may come to life from death and enter into lifelong discipleship. Discipleship that goes out and tries to create other disciples in the power of the Spirit. So I love being an evangelist, but I haven't always been an evangelist. It's not like I, it's not like I was born and the doctor held me in his arms and I kind of giggled and snotted. And the, the doctor was like, oh, salvation, I'll become a Christian. There was a process of me, myself, having to come to faith. Before I could share faith, when I was 10 years old, my parents were missionaries. Any, any missionary kids here? Any, any preacher's kids? Any, any Bible college kids here? Like, like one or t- one, actually, not even two, just one. You and me, brother, in it together, in it to win it. Um, we, oh, a couple at the back as well, so, uh, hanging out at the back. I, I get it. Yeah, missionary kids, rebels. Okay, so um, we, we, we all rebel at some point. Um, so I was, a, I was a missionary kid. I grew up, my, my dad was a, a preacher and, and my parents were missionaries in Europe. And um, by the way, you will notice that I will say Europe referring to like the mainland, like France and Germany and that, because in Britain, we don't really think of ourselves as being in Europe. And <laughs> funnily enough, it looks like we're not going to be anymore. So that's, that's sad times as well. Um, I voted to stay in. I'm just going to put my colors to the mask right now. I voted to stay in. Uh, absolutely. I think we should have stayed, but, but there you go. So uh, we, um, we, my parents were missionaries into Europe, and I remember when I was 10 years old, I'd gone to church, and I'd, I'd learned about Jesus and stuff, but I'd not got to a place where, like the verse that we heard from, Romans chapter 10, the verse 9, the first verse that we heard there, if you openly declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will 
be saved. What does it mean to become a Christian? It means to make Jesus Lord of your life. It means moving from a place of understanding to a place of standing under. We understand who Jesus is. Oh, he's Lord. Oh, okay, I'm going to stand under his lordship. That's what it means to become a Christian, okay? So I hadn't made that decision for myself. I hadn't come to a place where I, uh, of my own choosing and said, yes, Jesus, I want you to be my savior. And then one night I was lying in bed um, and uh, I heard a noise and it was my sister, my older sister. Uh, she, was, she was starting to get out of bed. She was asleep as well, but not anymore. She's getting out of bed. And I think to myself, oh, hello. Hello, my sister's getting out of bed after nighttime. This is, this is good news. This is good news because she's not supposed to be out of bed after dark. And, uh, and if you go downstairs after dark, my parents don't like that. She's going to get shouted at. This is fantastic. Because if my sister's getting shouted at, it means that I'm not getting shouted at. So happy days. Has anybody got brothers or sisters in, in the place? Yeah, you guys, I don't know how you feel about this. Maybe I'm just a mean brother. But when I was like 10, the greatest thing in the world was hearing my sister get told off. It just was. It just was. So I'm hearing my sister go downstairs, and I'm like, this is awesome. She's going to get told off. She goes downstairs, and uh, she, uh, she, she, she's down there for a while, and I'm listening, and I don't hear anything happen. I don't hear anything happen. I'm thinking to myself, there's no noise, silence. And then I start to worry. Because a long time passes where nothing happens. And I start to think, if she's downstairs and she's not getting told off, maybe something bad has happened. Maybe one of her arms has dropped off or something. It was quite an irrational child. So I thought, I'm going to go and check out and see, see what's going on here. So I left my bedroom and I, I went to the, uh, the stairway looking down the banister. And I peeked my head around the stairway. And as I did that, I saw my sister starting to come back up the stairs. Okay, So I looked down and I, I looked around and I said, Katie. Katie, because that's her name, you see. <laughs> Katie. And she looked at me and she said, what? I said, what have you been doing downstairs? She said, oh, just become a Christian. I was like, oh, fair play, fair play. And she was like, uh, I looked around and I saw she had something in her hand. And I, I thought to myself, what have you got in your hand? So I said, Katie. What? Well, she was at the top of the stairs by now. It's not that long of a staircase. She... <laughs> she we weren't whispering. We were just talking. And, and, and I said to her, I said, what, what have you got in your hand? And she said, oh, I've got, I've got some books. She had three books in her hand. I said, where would you get those books from? And she said, oh, uh, mom and dad gave me these books to encourage me. Now that I'm a Christian, they're going to help me in my Christian faith. Now, there's something you have to understand about me. I know you're looking at me right now thinking to yourselves, look at this hip, cool young guy. I know that's what you're thinking. And if that's not what you're thinking, shame on you. Um, uh, but actually, I'm, I'm kind of old. I'm getting, I'm getting a little bit old. In my, my, my friend over here, just if you were to take a stab in the dark, how, how old would you say that I was? Be careful. Uh, 32. 32. That's actually not a bad guess. I'm a little bit older than that. I'm 34 years old, which means that I grew up in the 80s. All right, any child, children of the 80s in here? A few of us? Yeah. All right, good, good. It was the greatest decade. I mean, it was awful, but it was the greatest decade. And um, the thing is, in the 80s, we didn't have a lot of the great stuff that, that we have now, right? We didn't have, back in the 80s, we didn't have all the cool gadgets and accessories. We didn't have iPhones, right? We didn't have iPads. We didn't have iMacs. We didn't have iTunes. We didn't have, we had eyes. That was the only eye thing we had, was it? No other eye stuff, okay? We didn't have, the, the internet didn't exist. Can you believe that? The internet didn't exist. YouTube didn't exist. If you needed a quick sermon illustration, you couldn't steal one from YouTube. You had to come up with your own nightmare, all right? So, um, so this was tough to, hey, get this one, right? If, if you in the 80s wanted to communicate with somebody, right, this is what you had to do. You had to write them, and this is disgusting, you had to write them a letter, a letter with your own hand and a pen, 
Do you believe that? And then when you wrote the words on the paper, you would then fold that paper up. You put it in an envelope. You put a stamp on it, which costs money, by the way. Money. Okay. Then you would put the envelope into a letterbox, a post box, and then you'd wait, I don't know, six weeks, something like that. And it would eventually arrive at the place where it was supposed to go. And your friend would get the letter. They'd read the letter and they'd be like, oh, that's nice. And then they'll write back to you. And you wouldn't get the letter because you'd moved by then. You moved to a different country. That's why I didn't have any friends when I was growing up. That's what my mom told me anyway. Um, so <laughs> friendship was tough. Things were tough. Life was tough in the 80s. It was a hard life. We didn't have all the cool stuff. But what we did have in the 80s, we had books, right? And books, a little bit too keen at the back there. Yeah. <laughs> Books. Got the librarian in the corner. That's great. Shh. Keep it down, though. Librarian. Shh. That was a great joke, and most of you didn't get it, but I'll let you off. Okay. So um, we had books, and books were awesome. If I was going to do a little, a little currency conversion from what books were worth then to what books would be worth now, it would be like this. Like, let's take an iPad, all right? iPad's got a lot of value to it, right? So I would say that one book in the 1980s was probably worth five iPads today give or take, in my deluded logic. So, essentially, my sister is coming upstairs with 15 iPads. Think about that for a second. 15 iPads in her hand. I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking to myself, hold on a second. You've got three books. I, too, would like some books. I, too, should become a Christian. So, this is what I did. I waited until the next night, because I thought you had to wait until nighttime to become a Christian. This story does not reflect well on my missionary parents. Um, and, uh, and I'm lying in bed and I'm looking at my watch. Is it time? Is it, is it Christianity o'clock? Can I go downstairs? Can I get the books? I'm so excited. So I waited and I waited and eventually I thought now's the time. So I ran downstairs and I kind of crept. And you know when you're going to do something? When you're, and you're kind of excited about it, but you're also nervous at the same time, like a roller coaster or something like that. I'm kind of nervous and I'm excited. I'm like, yeah, this is going to be so good. I'm going to get the books. This is the greatest day of my life. And I get to the door uh, of the front room where my parents are watching TV and I, I can hear them in there. And I start to open the door. Uh, and I start to peek my head around the door. And as I peek my head around the door of the lounge, I see my dad sitting on the sofa watching television like this. And I kind of peek my head around the door like that. And he sat on the sofa. And it was the weirdest thing. It was like some kind of from a sci-fi movie or something like that. It was like he turned into a, a, a evil cyborg robot from the future. His head turned so slowly in my direction, like mechanically and evilly, like just... And just his eyes locked onto my eyes. And we just had this moment like in a Western movie where we were just in a bit of a standoff where I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. And then if I remember rightly, because it was quite a long time ago, the following words came out of his mouth. Something along the lines of, what are you doing out of bed? Now, being a 10-year-old boy with the emotional disposition of a three-year-old girl, there was really only one response that I could have to that, and that was to start crying. I started crying. I panicked. I didn't know what to do. I was like, oh, he shouted at me, and I started crying, and I was like, ah, and, and because I started crying, I was embarrassed, so I, I started to run. I just turned around, and I ran, 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 and eventually I got to the stairs. I had really short legs, and I started running up the stairs, and I got about halfway up the stairs, and I suddenly thought to myself, hold on a second. I'm going upstairs without the books. This is not acceptable. This will not do. So I decided to employ the only weapon that a child really has against 
against their parent, which is the, the weapon of guilt. You, you guilt trip your parents, try and make them feel a bit guilty, then you might, you shouldn't do it, but it's, it's what kids do, right? They employ the weapon of guilt all the time. It's a terrible thing. I thought, I'm going to make them feel guilty. By the way, I should just say at this point, I was once telling this story in, in, in England, and uh, there was a kid on the front row, and I said, I decided to employ the only weapon that a child has against their parent. And this kid on the front row with just dead eyes just went, a gun. <laughs> okay, everybody out of the room. We're going to be praying the demons out of this one for quite some time. Um, but it's fine, it's fine. He's in prison now. So um, he's not really, it's not really, it's fine. He was just joking, I think. Um, so uh, I thought I'm going to guilt trip them. So I, I shouted back downstairs through the tears, and I mustered up as much energy as I could. I only wanted to become a Christian. Brilliant, brilliant move. Because my dad came straight up the stairs, and he was like, Ben, what's this about wanting to become a Christian? And I explained. I said, oh, I just, just wanted to become a Christian. And, and my dad, knowing me so well, he looks at me, and he goes, Ben, does this have anything to do with the books? And I'm like, no, no, maybe, yes. And he's like, I'll tell you what, Ben, look, nothing would give me and your mother greater joy than knowing that you had chosen to follow Jesus. But you need to understand what following Jesus is really about. It's not about getting books. It's about getting life. So this is what we're going to do. It's late. I'm going to pray for you as you go to sleep. And then in the morning, we're going to get up early. We're going to have breakfast together. Me and your mom are going to explain some more about what it means to follow Jesus. And I knew stuff already. They were going to build upon what I already knew. And if in that time you feel prompted, you, you want to become a follower of Jesus, amazing. And sure enough, that's what we did. And at 10 years old, over breakfast the following morning, I made the greatest decision I ever made, the greatest decision any human being ever makes, which is to say, Jesus Christ, you are Lord. You are Lord of my life. But here's the problem. I almost missed the point of it all. I almost missed the point of it all. I thought Christianity was about getting something trivial like, like books. So if I do this, I'll, I'll get some cool books, and then I'll have some stuff, and then that will satisfy me, and that will please me. That plays into the world. We live in a world that is constantly looking for the next high. If I could just get that, if I could just get that product, if I could just get that car, if I could just get that item of clothing, if I could just um, look a certain way, if I, if I could just achieve a certain goal, then somehow I'd be happy, I'd be satisfied. And God's sitting on the sidelines of people's lives trying to break through and say to them, no, you don't get it. You were created for that stuff. You were created for me. You were created for me, for life and life in all of its fullness. Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What Jesus is saying is, don't let the enemy, don't let the world rob you of the greatest gift that there is, which is life. Life that is only found in Jesus Christ. Every human being that has breath in their lungs exists, but only those that know Jesus Christ truly live. Let that sink in for a second. Every human being that has breath in their lungs exists, but only those who know Jesus Christ live. You were not created for existence. You were created for life, and life is found in Jesus Christ. Those beautiful words that Paul gives us say, if you openly declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? That's what I get asked all the time. You might be looking at me right now thinking, Ben, you're a bit of an unorthodox preacher. You don't look like some of the other preachers that we have. Well, that might be true, but all preachers in the UK look like me. Every single one. Charles Spurgeon, snapback and tattoos. Amazing. I'm just kidding. I, I, look, the way, I look the way that I do. We want because I, I just 
weirdly like to dress like this, but, but two, because I spend most of my time preaching to, to young people. And, and one of the things that young people ask me all the time is, Ben, what does it mean to be saved? Saved from what? And that's a great question, isn't it? Saved from what? Well, here's the answer. Saved from yourself, who chooses death when there is life. Saved from yourself, who continuously and constantly rebels and rejects against life, the king of the universe, the savior of your world, your heavenly father, the perfect sustainer of everything. We rebel and we reject that and we take death. Because it gives us a little kick from time to time. We get a little bit of satisfaction. We get to keep a little bit of control that we want to have. God, you're all right, but I think I can do a better job going my own way. Thank you very much. I think I'd like to be in the driving seat of my life. Thank you very much. Oh, God, I do really love you, and I believe that Jesus died for me. But if I can just hold on to this stuff over here, if I can just keep one foot in this sinful activity over here, because I do kind of like this stuff that I'm engaged with over here. I do kind of like this lifestyle over here. It kind of makes me feel good from time to time. So I do love you, God, but I just, and God's like, no, 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 no. There's no middle ground. If you are in me, if you remain in me, you remain in love. And all that live in love live in God, and God lives in them. 1 John 4, 16. It's a promise. You get life, and life in all of its forms. But if you have one foot in the other, if you have one foot in the past, one foot in sin, one foot in rebellion, then you are all into rebellion. It doesn't work that you can be half and half. It doesn't work that you can give uh, Sunday and, and a couple of days of the week to Jesus, and then, and then the rest of the time you kind of go and do what you want, and God's like, no, it doesn't work like that. It does not work like that. If you choose life... You choose life, which means complete surrender, complete surrender to my lordship. But it is a gift. It is a gift. And the problem that I have these days as I go around to talk to young people, and as I gave you some of those statistics earlier, young people are literally having their lives stolen from them. I'm not just talking about their, 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 their kind of future career options. I'm talking about literally their lives stolen from them because they believe the lies of this world. They believe that they don't have any significance, that there's no meaning, that they're not loved and cherished by a father God. And so they choose death, not just in a, in a spiritual sense, but in a, in a literal sense, they choose death through, through suicide so often, so frequently. Horror. Horror. Well, it doesn't have to be this way. But the question is, as Paul puts it in those verses from Romans chapter 10, how will people know that they are loved? How will people know that there is life instead of death? How can they believe and call upon the one unless they've heard about him? And how can they hear unless we go and we tell them? We become the ambassadors of peace, the ministers of reconciliation, as Paul says. Beautiful ministers of reconciliation going into the world and saying, you don't need to live in death. You don't need to live in despair and brokenness. You can come back to the Father who has life and life in all its fullness. And I do wonder if one of the problems that we have today is that people have lost a bit of confidence in the gospel. We've lost confidence that the gospel is sufficient and powerful enough to save anyone who hears it. Anyone who receives it. Anyone who says, I choose to believe that this is true and I follow you, Jesus, with my whole life. There is salvation. When you make that choice, there is freedom when you make that choice. But have we lost confidence in the power of the gospel? I can't speak on behalf of you guys here in Jersey or or you guys here in this church community. I can only comment on what I see in the UK. And what I see in the UK church is absolutely that we have lost confidence in the power of the gospel. 
That's the only reason I can come up with as to why the church does not devote the majority of its time to witnessing to the lost. I get 70 years on this earth if I'm lucky, if I'm healthy. Maybe, you know, 70, 80 years if I I have a good run in this modern age. Why would I waste time not telling people about Jesus Christ if I believe that there is an eternal destiny that awaits them that is death rather than life? Why would I waste time doing anything but going into the world and saying, you need Jesus. You're heading for death, but there's life. You don't have to have death. You can have life. It's been made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But even if it doesn't make logical sense, and I think that makes pretty good logical sense, Christ himself implores us to this life. Christ himself says, you've got to go. You've got to go into the world. Be my disciples who make disciples of all the nations. Let them come under my lordship. But here's the beautiful thing. He doesn't expect us to do it on our own. Acts chapter 1 says, you will receive power. As Jesus talked to his disciples, his followers, just before he ascends back to heaven, you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. What for? So we can come and have the best epic praise party that we've ever had, Jesus? Tell us more. No, you'll receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses into Jerusalem and Judea and, and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Wow. You know what a witness is? You do a crime, uh, you go to a court, and they bring the witness up, and the wit- what does the witness have to do? Speak truthfully, testify truthfully about the situation so that the jury or the judge can make a verdict of guilty or not guilty. So here's the question. As followers of Jesus, as we go out into the world, as we live our lives transformed and changed by the power of the Spirit, as we speak about the wonderful gospel that God has given us, is there enough evidence there for non-believers to look and go, oh, wow. I'm in. Give me what you got. Give me this life. Because I'm sick of death. I need something else. And people clearly are sick of death. That's the way the world looks the way that it does. You turn on the news. Sometimes we don't need to turn on the news. We just look in our own households, in our own communities, tragically. In our own lives, if we're being honest, sometimes. And we see turmoil and we see difficulty. And people say to me sometimes, they say, hey, Ben, it's easy for you to say these things. You've already said you're a professional evangelist. You get paid to do this. You're experienced. You do this all the time. Look, it didn't always go well for me. I was in New York last summer. And uh, as you know, I think I came here as part of that trip. And, um, and I was in one of the parks. I forget which one it was now. One of the parks on Manhattan. And I'm sitting on a bench. And a young man walks over to the bench. And he comes and sits next to me. And uh, I'm like, okay, you know, and you do that thing when a stranger kind of walks up, you do the nod, you just kind of, you nod at them, they nod at you, you acknowledge each other's presence. And then he starts speaking to me, and he says these words, he says, hey, do you mind if I ask you what you do for a living? And I think to myself, hold on a second, I'm such a powerful evangelist, I don't need to go to the people, the people come to me. This is phenomenal. So I'm like, yes, you can, sir. Yes, you can ask what I do for a living. Check this out. I preach the gospel. And this guy looks at me, and he looks a bit disappointed, and he says, oh, I thought you did something cool like work in the film industry. I was like, oh, wounded, wounded. I was like, I've got to win him back. Now, as part of my evangelism, I'm also a DJ. I travel, I perform music concerts, and as part of the concerts, preach the gospel. It's a great way to engage with young people. So I say, I've got to win him back with the music industry. That's kind of cool. So I say, hey, I'm not just a preacher of the gospel. <laughs> I'm also a DJ. And he's like, yeah, oh, okay, yeah, that's kind of cool. So we have a conversation about that, and it starts going well. And I think to myself, the time is right for me to start dropping gospel stuff in. And he says, I'm from the Philippines. I moved over here for work. I'm a bit lonely. My family are in the Philippines, and I feel a bit lonely. And I said to him, hey, you know what? 
I can help you with this. You know what's helped me in times of, of loneliness is, is my church family, my church community. And, and, and from church community, I start to segue into the, pre, into the preaching of the gospel, explaining the, 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 the rebellion, the rejection of God. And that's why there's problems in the world and the, the, the result and the, the rescue plan being Jesus Christ and all of these things. And I get halfway through explaining these things and you're never going to believe what happened next. He falls to his face on the floor right there in the middle of this park in New York City. And he says, Jesus, I need you now. And then something even more incredible than that happened. Every other person in the park, every other person in the park similarly fell to their faces before God, calling out to him, Jesus, I need you now. And then I could hear these calls all around New York City. It was filtering out, filtering out. I was thinking, oh my word, I have just ushered in revival across New York City. You guys must have seen this in your newspapers and on your TV, the New York revival last year. You didn't see? Yeah, it didn't happen though, did it? This is what happens. I get halfway through explaining the gospel to him and he puts his hand up like that. At first, I think he's going for a high five. I'm like, what, you want a high five? What's... He's like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I was like, oh, okay. I've got nothing else. He's like, okay. We sat there in an awkward silence for a couple minutes. And then eventually he stood up and he walked away. He said, hey, it was nice to meet you. And he walked off and that was that. I never saw him again. Here's the thing. Sometimes... We step out in faith to preach the gospel, to share the gospel with people. And you know what? Of their own choosing, of their own volition, of their own free will, they say, I don't want it. But if we allow that to stop us from going out every time with fresh hope, with fresh enthusiasm, we are denying the reality that the gospel has the power to save in every situation. But God will not force himself upon anybody. He will allow people to choose for themselves. I cannot predict the outcome. I can't make it happen. Here's the scary one. I can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. But God can. And when God allows me, which is mind-blowing, what a privilege, what a privilege to be the mouthpiece for his gospel, to faithfully share it in the way that I live, but crucially in the way that I articulate his hope, then this world can know something that they don't know. I just want to share four real quick points with you uh, around the kingdom of God. Because sometimes I think the reason why we're, we lose confidence in the gospel and we're worried about it having the power to save or we're, we're worried about stepping out of our comfort zone and sharing faith. And I'm not talking that everybody has to be a preacher that stands on this stage that preaches the gospel powerfully. Although I believe that there could well be people in here that God is calling to do that. But all of us are called to be witnesses. Every single believer is called to be a witness interpersonal relationships to share faith whenever we can. And I want to encourage you this morning with four points about the kingdom of God that I hope will send you from this place with a passion and a desire and a strengthening to be a witness for Christ. The first one is this. The kingdom of God is eternal. That's crucial. Because when you have an eternal perspective, it changes everything. When you think that you're a cosmological accident, that you arrived on this earth just because the universe threw you out and that there's no eternal consequence, that will change the way that you live your life. It may even change the way that you choose to end your life, as we've already explored. But the Bible says, in the beginning, God. In the uh, book of Daniel, chapter 7, where Daniel gets this incredible vision uh, of, of, of the end of days. And he sees God uh, come uh, down on, on, a, on a fiery throne. And, and God appears, and Daniel says, there was one like an ancient of days, the eternal one. 
wise and old, has always existed. Jesus himself, the eternal word who has existed before all things, who will always exist. The kingdom of God and the Godhead three in one is eternal. It has always existed and it will always exist. And God out of eternal relationship with himself has created us for eternal relationship with himself. Wonderful. Wonderful. That's life. But when you don't know that, when you believe that you're an accident, oh man, it ruins you. It ruins you. It changes your perspective on what you live for, what you die for, your relationships, your interactions. You're not an accident. You're part of the eternal kingdom of God. Georges Lemaitre was a cool guy. Anybody ever heard of Georges Lemaitre? He's a Belgian priest. Three things that he loved. Jesus, astronomy, and waffles, because he's Belgian. It's the best joke I've got about that, I'm afraid. George Lamarcha was a, an astronomer and a priest. He used to like look down his telescope and uh, look into the night sky. And, and he decided as, as a man of God and also as a scientist that if God did indeed create the world, which he believed, that, uh, that there should be some cosmological echo, some kind of scarring that we could see in the night sky. So Lamartre stepped out and wrote his thesis, his ideas down on paper and said, I think if we look into the night sky, we'll be able to see some kind of origin of the universe. You know what that theory is now called? It's called the Big Bang Theory. You guys have heard of that, right? Not the TV show. The Big Bang Theory. And yet, so often today as I travel around, people say to me, oh, Ben, why do you believe in God? The Big Bang Theory solved that problem. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? How's the Big Bang solved the problem? Solved the issue of where we came from. George Lemaitre proposed this idea. God created the world, and there should be some kind of scientific evidence of that initial moment of, of life spark in the universe. That was the original Big Bang Theory. Einstein, you guys know who Einstein is? Albert Einstein, very clever guy, very clever guy, always putting his tongue out. He, um, he, he came along, and he said, no, I don't, I don't agree with you, George Lemaitre. I don't agree with you. That, that couldn't be the case, because at the time, astrophysics believed the universe was eternal. And Lamartre's theory proposed that the universe had a beginning. Now, that's what we believe now scientifically, that the universe is finite. It's not eternal. And it does have a beginning. And yet the theory gets thrown out against us as Christians as being the origin of life. But it doesn't make sense without God. And this is the absurdity of the world that we live in. What's naught, what, what's naught times a thousand? Naught. Naught times a thousand is naught. What's naught times a million? Naught. It will always be naught. What are you going to do if you want to get something from naught? You've got to do what? You've got to add something, right? You've got to take a one, add it to the naught, you get one. But if you've got nothing to add, what will you always have? Naught. So how can a universe come from nothing? How does the Big Bang explain where we came from? If there was nothing, why is there now something? But we live in an absurd world that would rather believe that we're a cosmological accident so that we can continue on our sinful lives doing whatever we want to do, even though it's destroying us and ruining us and leading us to destruction. Absurdity. But God has created this world not in chaos. He's created this world in order. And when he creates it, what does he do? He looks at it and he says, it is very good. It is very good. You are not an accident. You are created by the eternal God for his eternal kingdom. Point number two, God's kingdom is perfect. It's perfect. In Daniel's vision, he goes on to explain that the ancient of days, his hair is as white as snow and his robe is radiant white. You know what this imagery provokes in the Bible? Purity. Perfection. There is no stain. It's perfect. What does the Bible say that the, the, the blood of Jesus does for us? It washes us white as what? Snow. We are washed white, clean, perfect. 
So the image of God is a, a, a one who is an ancient of days with white hair, with a, a white robe. He is perfect. His kingdom is perfect. And this is so important for us to get our minds around because here's the problem that so many people struggle with. This idea of, ah, why does God... Why does God seem a bit judgmental? Why does God seem a bit angry and, and like he's always having a go and telling us that we can't do stuff? Here's why. Because he's perfect and because he takes sin seriously and so should we. Because when we don't take sin seriously, guess what happens? We end up with a world that we're living in right now. A world of war and violence and poverty and pain and suffering. And God looks upon the world and he says, no, 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 no. You weren't created for that. That's death. That's imperfection. You were created for perfect uh, life. Jesus himself implores his followers in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, be perfect as your Father God is perfect. He is perfection. And he cannot tolerate sin. But we need to understand that when we come before a perfect God, he has made it possible for us to inherit a perfect kingdom. So wouldn't it be wonderful if we could actually go into the world and actually say, hey, you know that this world looks a bit rough? This world is a bit difficult. This world is a bit challenging. Well, here's the thing. One day God's going to put it right because he's just. I think a lot of people in their gospel preaching, in their presentation of the gospel, are scared of the word sin. We're scared of the word repentance. We're scared of saying to people, you know what? I don't think God wants you to live like that. I think that's leading you to death and destruction. I think actually God has life for you. You need to change direction, repent. That's what it literally means. Have a complete change of person. Turn around. You're going the wrong way. Face Jesus and come back to him. Come back into his perfect kingdom, his perfect love, his perfect forgiveness, his perfect peace. Because he is sufficient. He is sufficient. He's not temporary. He's eternal. And he's perfect. But because you're a sinner... You've excluded yourself from that perfect, glorious inheritance and kingdom. But here's the good news. Point number three. God's kingdom is, um, not eternal, we've done that one. God's kingdom is victorious. Christ has won victory against imperfection. Christ has won victory against death. Christ has won victory against separation from God. Because what Christ has achieved upon the cross through his death and his resurrection I once went to an Easter service where someone preached about Jesus on the cross and they didn't mention that he was resurrected. <laughs> Awkward. If Jesus didn't rise again, forget it, all bets are off, but he did. And when Jesus rises again, you know what that means for us? It means that we can share in his new life. That the same spirit that brings Jesus Christ back to life, the Bible tells us, will come and reside within us and empower us to live the lives that God always intended for us to live. Jesus says in John chapter 16 that he has overcome the world. The victory is his. Look, sometimes we go out, sometimes I preach the gospel and it doesn't go the way I want it to and the lad stands up and he walks away and he doesn't receive the gospel. I have to trust God on that one. Maybe the seeds were planted. Maybe he went off and prayed a prayer that night. Maybe some other guy or gal will talk to him in 20 years time and he'll have a memory of that. I don't know. I have to just leave that in God's hands and trust it to him because if I trust in the victory of God, anything is possible. If I trust that what God did at the cross of Calvary through his son, Jesus Christ, has made it possible for me to know life and life in all of its fullness when I'm deserving of death, I have no right to life whatsoever. I've rebelled. I've rejected. Here's the problem. We think rebellion is cool. Who likes Star Wars? Who likes Star Wars? Nobody likes Star Wars. That's the first time in my life I have ever asked that question. And no, we're like, no, we're Star Trek people. I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, in Star Wars, the good guys are the rebellion. 
They're the rebellion, aren't they? They're, they're kind of the cool rebellion guys. And Han Solo, he's the coolest character in it, and he's very rebellious. He's like, I do what I want. I'm a rebel. And we're like, oh, yeah, you're cool. We like you. We like you, right? The rebel's cool. The jacket up. The toothpick in the mouth. Seriously, ladies, never the jacket with the toothpick in the mouth. If you see that guy, go a different direction. Um, but here's the point. Rebellion in those movies is kind of cool because they're always rebelling against an authority that is oppressive and trying to, trying to hurt them and harm them like the evil empire in Star Wars. The problem for us is when we rebel against God, we're not rebelling against an evil empire. We're rebelling against life. So if you rebel against all that is life, all that is good, all that is perfection, all that is love, all that is grace, all that is mercy, compassion... If you rebel against that and you turn your back on that and you go the other way, what are you left with? Death. And that's what we deserve for our rebellion against God. But because Jesus is victorious over death and because Jesus is so kind, God is so kind, so gracious, so faithful to us. He says, no, I've, I've paid the price. It's done. All you need to do now is believe in your heart that I raised him from the dead so that you can share in that new life because the victory of the cross gives us authority to go into the world and bring life where there was only the possibility of death and that's the final point the kingdom advances we get to share in what God is doing in the world today and that blows my mind because God doesn't need to use us for what he's doing. He could do it however he wanted. And the fact that God looks at you, every single one of you, and he looks at me and he says, oh, I love you. I really love you. In fact, I don't just love you. I also like you. There's a distinction there. Sometimes we say, well, I don't have to like you, but I'm going to love you. You know, that kind of slightly reluctant to love. God doesn't do that. He doesn't ever look at you and go, I don't like you, but I choose to love you anyway. No, he doesn't do that. God looks at you and he goes, I like you and I love you. You're my created child, chosen, beautiful. Olivia, is it Olivia? Thank you so much for sharing your music with us earlier. It's beautiful. It touched me very deeply. Thank you so much. And you know, God wants to use you, Olivia, with your gift of music and all sorts of other gifts that I'm sure he's blessed you with as well. And he wants to use Pastor Eugene with his gifts of um, music and, and preaching and teach Bible teaching. And I have to affirm Pastor Eugene to you, not to make the place awkward because it's a biblical principle that we would affirm each other and hold each other up and love on each other. And you are blessed with a very special man in your, in your church here. This is a great leader, a great man of God, a great Bible teacher, a great friend. And I really want to affirm you, Pastor Eugene, for, for, for who you are, for what God's doing in your life. And God smiles upon you. And this is a man who's thirsty to see the lost get saved. He's thirsty to see you guys get discipled, but he's thirsty to see the lost get saved because he gets it. And he wants to use any gifting that he's got. And God is saying to you today, do you want to partner with me in advancing my kingdom? In taking this wonderful message of life into the world? Because how else will they know? How will they know if we don't go and tell them that God's kingdom is eternal? You're not an accident. You're part of an eternal plan and you can inherit eternal perfection. Why? Because God's kingdom is perfect. And that has been bought for you through the victory of the cross, which means you can go into the world victorious in the power of the spirit with the authority of all of heaven behind you to say, enemy, you have no hold over any human being. There is freedom, there is hope, there is life, there is love for all who choose to submit their lives to Jesus Christ. 
And there is an eternal perfection awaiting all of us. But here's the thing. We can't wait until heaven to experience perfection. We've got to strive for holy lives now so that we can rip something of heaven to earth today so that people can see the hope that God has instilled within us. 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give a, a defense or a reason for the hope that you have in Jesus. Are you ready? Are you ready to give a reason why you have hope in Jesus through the way you live your life, through the way you articulate so that people can know hope today? How else are they going to know? For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Paul says in that passage from Romans 10. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I ain't no universalist. I ain't standing before you here saying at the end times, every single human being is going to get saved. I wish that were true, but it's not going to happen. Not if we believe the Bible to be true. This is what the Bible teaches. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be. Not all will call. We don't have control over who does and doesn't call, but what we do have control over is giving them every opportunity to receive the gospel and respond to it. You know, they say on average it takes someone seven times of hearing the gospel before they respond to it. So we preach. And we preach again. And we preach again. And we preach again. And we do it in the power of the Spirit. So we pray. And we pray again. And we pray again. And we pray again. And we do it in the assurance of His Word. So we read. And we read again. And we read again. And we read again. And we never stop going. So that they can know. Know.